What does the Bible say about tolerating and associating with sinners? It's the cross-culture Q&A question. The answer right after this week's Crosswalk. A sneak peek at the end of the last week. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. The purpose of the movie trailer is to try and give you some snippets of the film that's just enough to make you want to say, oh, I want to see that film. Most of us have seen movie trailers before. They're an advertisement for an upcoming movie that shows parts of the film. Usually not enough to give away the ending, but just enough to make us want to go see the movie. Unfortunately, sometimes the trailer shows the best part of the movie. And when you see the film, well, it just doesn't live up to the hype of the trailer. Well, Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, it's like a movie trailer that gives the ending away. But in this case, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. As we continue our year-long study of the book of Revelation, we come today to Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, which, in a way, is like a movie trailer. As Pastor Clay will explain, there's still a lot that's going to happen as we move into the latter part of the book of Revelation. But before we get there, the Holy Spirit impresses on John, the writer of the book, to give us an advanced look of just how this story ends. Unlike a movie trailer, though, God gives us the ending ahead of time, and it's anything but a disappointment. What God is saying is, it's a done deal. It's over. Turn out the lights. The party's over. Hasta la vista, baby. Even though it's yet a future event to occur, God is saying this thing is done. This sneak peek should be a great source of encouragement to us as we live out our lives to the glory of God. Thanks for being with us today. Everybody knows what a movie trailer is, right? A movie trailer, if you don't know, is um, it's basically a commercial about a movie that's coming out. The, the movie producers will produce a trailer prior to the release of the movie that uh, they'll show in the movie theaters when you're there watching another movie or they'll show on TV. And the purpose of the movie trailer is to try and give you some snippets of the film that's just enough to make you want to say, oh, I want to see that film. I want to go see that movie. That's the purpose of a, of a movie trailer. Well, Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, is kind of a movie trailer. It's kind of a glimpse at what's about to happen as we get to the end of this book, this year-long study of the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, today, this is a little unusual, I don't usually do that, but as a matter of fact, today, I'm going to give you the BP squared before I even read the text to you today. Our BP squared is what we call our big picture biblical principle. It's the overarching idea that, that I kind of glean from the text as I'm studying and I'm searching out God's will. I'm trying to sometimes uh, in, encapsulate in one statement what I think uh, the, the text is saying. And, and here's the BP squared for you today for Revelation chapter 11, 15 through 19. A sneak peek at the end of the last week. It's a sneak peek at the end of the last week. If you've been with us through this study or through a good bit of this study, you may remember way back in our study in the book of Revelation, really in the, in the early part of our study of the Revelation, 
we, we spent a good deal of time one day working in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 and, and what's referred to as Daniel's uh, 70 weeks of prophecy. And then in that connection, how Daniel chapter 9 and the 70 weeks of prophecy, how that connects with the book of Revelation. I don't have time, obviously, to go back and explain the whole thing. And you can always go online and listen and, and catch up uh, messages and, and that sort of thing. But, but the 70 weeks of Daniel, in, in, that, in that prophecy, the word weeks uh, stands for a seven-year period of time. Daniel, 70 weeks, each week represents a seven-year period of time, okay? The 70th week, the last week in Daniel's prophecy is pertaining to the, the last week, the, the last week or the last seven years on this earth before the Messiah, or the, also known as the Savior, before the Savior returns. So the 70th week in Daniel is about the last week or the last seven years of history, if you will, on this earth before Jesus returns. It is, and it's that 70th week, that seven-year period of time that we have been studying most of this year, certainly from Revelation chapter 4 on. We've been studying about that. That, that period of time, which most of you by now know is also referred to as the tribulation period. Remember, there are three sets of judgments in the book of Revelation. There are the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven bowl judgments. Three separate sets of judgments that are listed in the book of Revelation... In our study, as we are right now moving into the latter half of the tribulation period. And the tribulation period is how long? Seven years. As we're now moving into the last, the last half, the latter half of that seven-year period. In other words, the last three and a half years. We've already seen the seven seal judgments and the terrible effects that they will have on this earth. And we've already dealt with six of the seven trumpet judgments and the devastating effects that those trumpet judgments will have on this earth. Now, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 through 19, as we get ready, as we're embarking there, the seventh angel is ready to announce or, or blow the trumpet, announcing the seventh trumpet judgment. You with me? Hanging on every word. The seventh trumpet, what we're going to discover is the seventh trumpet judgment is actually an introduction to the seven bowl judgments. You got me? The seventh trumpet judgment, the last one, will actually introduce the seven bowl judgments. Just like, if you remember, the seventh seal judgment introduced the seven trumpet judgments. Okay? That's where we are as we come to Revelation chapter 11. Now, we don't actually see the bold judgments. They're about to be announced. The seventh angel is about to blow his trumpet. They're about to be announced. But we don't actually see the trumpet judgments until we get to chapter 16, believe it or not. And the reason for that is because in chapters 12 through 15, God has some things that he wants to tell us that kind of put the pieces together in the entire tribulation period understanding. It's kind of a... a a parenthetical statement. It's, he's kind of setting aside 
the, the, the chronological order, and he's stopping in chapters 12 through 15 to help us get a broader understanding of the tribulation period as a whole. But before he does that, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 through 19, we get a glimpse at what's going to happen at the end. It's a sneak peek at the end of the last week, or the last, or the end of the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 through 19. Let me read it to you this morning. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants and the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Such is Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 through 19. Now, even though it's only five verses, there's a lot in there this week. There's a lot in those, in those verses. So I want to I give you a little more detailed outline. And if you, if you follow along with an outline each week on the back of your information sheet, you may see that it's a little more detailed outline this week. I want to give you a little more detailed outline to help kind of give you, a, a, hopefully, a, a better perspective of what Revelation chapter 11 is saying and, and what's uh, going on. We're going to approach a few ideas in here. And the first thing that I want to talk about this morning is this. God's victory secured. That's the first thing we see in uh, Revelation chapter 11. In verse 15, as, as, uh, as we come to it, we find out here's the seventh, the seventh angel is sounding, meaning the seventh angel of the trumpet judgments. He sounded. He, he blew his trumpet. And as he does, John says he hears there were loud voices in heaven. Maybe it was a chorus of angel, angels. Maybe it was all of the angels. Maybe it was everybody that was gathered around the throne. And we've looked at that several times, that scene in heaven where, where all myriads and myriads of people are gathered around the throne and angels and, and the elders and, and all this kind of stuff. Maybe it's all of them, but whoever it is, it's loud. And, and, and with a loud voice, they shout out, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now listen to me. It would be wrong to say that God is not in control of his creation. God ultimately is in control of all of his creation. But in that control, in his sovereignty, God has allowed Satan to have his influence over this world for a period of time. And he certainly has had his influence over this world. Would you not agree? Part of it the, part of the reason, you know, because people say, well, why, why would God do that? Why would God let, allow Satan to have control? I, I, don't, I don't have all those kind of answers, but, but part of it has to do with the fact that it, it's in some way that I don't even have to understand. It fits into the ultimate sovereign plan of God. And also, somehow it fits into God's allowing man to have free will. 
Somewhere in there, in that mix, is the reason why Satan has given some dominion, some control over this, over this world. What is clear is this, that this world, by and large, the systems of this world, the, the political and religious systems of this world, by and large, do not follow after God or His standards of righteousness. Would that be, would that be a fair assessment of the world at, at large? I think it would be. And notice the text says, and let me read it again, the kingdom of the world has, the emphasis there is mine, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, in the original language in Greek that the New Testament was was written in, this is what it would be referred to as the prophetic use of the aorist participle. Now, that may not fry your bacon, but what it means should mean something to us. Because what it means is, what God is saying is, it's a done deal. It's over. Turn out the lights. The party's over. Hasta la vista, baby. It's over. It's done. Even though it's yet a future event to occur, God is saying this thing is done according to my sovereign will. It's, it's, we've not yet experienced it. The world has not yet experienced it. But God says the kingdom of the world has become. Count it. Put it down. God's victory is secured. As I said, it, it, it would be easy uh, to look around and say, wow, I, I don't... I really think Satan's winning at this thing. I mean, I mean, come on. Look at this. Those of us that, that study church trends here in America, we know that the vast majority of churches in America are in decline. We know that. Every year in America, there's an increasing number of people that claim they have no belief in God at all. In, in, in the world overall, persecution against Christians is on the rise. And... And it is tempting to look around and say, wow, I don't think God's winning at this thing. I think Satan's getting the upper hand here. This thing seems to be getting worse and worse and worse and worse. I don't, I, I don't, I don't think that God's winning at this. On the authority of God's word, Satan will not have victory. On the authority of God's word, it's, it's, it's like... 15 through 19, it's like God is saying, listen, uh, John, I know I've got some other stuff I've got to give you uh, to kind of fill in this picture about how it's all going to transpire and stuff. But let me just go ahead and fast forward to the end of the book. We win. We win. All of the badness of this world, all of the sin and the indecency and the corruption and the destruction and the pain and the suffering and the death and, and the disease and the sickness... All of it, all that the sin curse brought, all that Satan has tried to corrupt and to destroy, all of it, one day, God says, will be done away with, finished, vanquished. And his victory is secured. Now, let me just say this before we move on. Even from a practical standpoint, forget about, you know, wanting to glorify God or or just all that aside. I'm not saying forget about it, but I'm just saying all that aside. Even just from a practical position, why Do you and I chase after the passing, fleeting promises of this world when God's kingdom will last forever and ever? Why don't we invest our lives into something that will last forever and ever? Because his victory is secured. Put it down, mark it down, close the book, end of story, hasta la vista, baby. God's victory is is secured. That's that's what God is telling us through John. Here's another idea about this. Not only is God's uh, victory secured, but the second idea is God's praise deserved. In, uh, in verses 16 through 18, God's praise 
is deserved. Now, in, chapters, in, in verse 16, we run into these 24 elders. Here they are again. By my count, this is the eighth time we've run into the 24 elders in the book of Revelation. And almost every single time we run into them, they are worshiping God, which quite possibly could be a lesson in there somewhere for us about the importance of worship and the realization that it's not simply some 20-minute portion of the Sunday morning service, that worship is actually a surrendering of my life, which is exactly what the elders are demonstrating when it says that they bowed before him. They, they prostrated themselves. They, they bowed their faces. It was, a, it, was, it was symbolizing a complete surrender to God. That, ladies and gentlemen, is worship in its purest form. A complete and utter and total surrender of themselves. And the 24 elders are there worshiping God. And they even tell us why they're worshiping him. And I want you to notice these because I think that they are important to see in the text. They even tell us, first thing, uh, God's praise is deserved because his reign extended. That's kind of connected to what we were just talking about a moment ago. But in verse uh, 17, he says, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. As I said a moment ago, there is coming a day when Satan will no longer have dominion over this world. He will no longer have sway or influence, but that God's righteousness will be established on the earth and that his reign will be extended and cover all, all the world, all of the earth. Imagine everyone acknowledging God, worshiping him, every tribe and tongue and people group. And the elders say, man, God, we're, we, we're worshiping you. We thank you because, because your reign is extended. Remember, it's still future. It hasn't even happened yet. But they're saying your, your reign is extended to all the earth. We know that that's what's going to happen. His reign extended. And the second reason that he's worthy of worship is because his righteousness is established. In verse 18, it says, and the nations were enraged. Huh. Well, you would think people would be happy about God's righteousness coming on the earth, wouldn't you? I mean, you would think people would be ecstatic about the fact that the sin curse would be lifted and there'd be no more disease or sickness or, or, or corruption, or all those things I mentioned a moment ago. And all that. You would think people would be happy about that. But no, no, John says the nations, the ethne, the ethnic groups, the people of the world were enraged. Why? Because when I don't want to bend my heart bow my heart to the authority of God in my life, I sure don't want to bend my knee. And that's exactly where these people were at this point. They're enraged at the idea that God wins. They're enraged at the idea that God's righteousness is going to be established. Why? Because they don't want to live by God's righteousness. They don't care about God's righteousness. They want what they want when they want it. And what they don't want is God's righteousness on this earth. And they're enraged you can really see a, a similarity between this text and kind of the prophetic uh, voice in Psalm 2, referring to the rebellious heart of people and, and probably a reference to the Battle of Armageddon in Psalm 2 where it says, Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. They don't even have a clue, do they, what real slavery actually is. Look at this. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at the idea that men, mere mortal men, will somehow stop his plans from occurring. His righteous reign is established on the earth. 
And the elders say, oh, God is so worthy of worship to know that someday the earth will be restored and, and we'll have earth like God intended for it to be all along. Third idea that they give us about why he's worthy of praise is this, his reward experienced. In that latter part of verse 18, by the way, let me mention this before I go on. I should have said this. There's kind of a play on words there in verse 18 where it talks about the wrath of men and the, and the anger of God. It's kind of a play on words in the original language. The two words are very closely connected. But in essence, what it's saying is that the people of the world are angry. They're pitching a fit. That's what they're doing. They're pitching a fit. That's, that's what this, this emotional, you know, rage is about. They're pitching a fit because they're not getting their way where God is angry because, because of the, the pain and the hurt and the suffering that's come onto the world because of sin and, and the injustice that exists in the world. And so God is angry at that injustice and he intends to deal with it. But in, in the latter part of, of verse 18, he says, uh, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the, the great, to destroy those who destroy the earth. In, listen, in the end, listen, it won't matter if you are famous or not. It won't matter if you are rich or not. It won't matter if, if you were noticed for what you did or not. It won't matter if your name's on the Hollywood Walk of Fame or not. It won't matter if, if you were voted most likely to, to do whatever in high school or college or not. The only thing that will matter in the end for us is whether we were faithful or not. That's the only thing that will really matter. And God's Word makes it clear. Listen, hey, this is good news, folks. I know it's hot, but this is good news. God's word makes it clear that God intends to fully reward those who have walked in faithfulness for him, with him and desired to, to love him and know him and walk with him and serve him. And he intends to reward us. And, pe- you know, I've heard people say this. Well, you know, I'm, I don't wanna, I'm not really in, in it for the reward. I, I just want to do it. Well, okay, I'll tell you what. When you get to heaven, you just go in and say, hey, listen, just give my reward to Pastor Clay. I, I, just, I just wanted to get in. That's all I was interested in. Because if, if God's giving it out, I figure it's got to be good. So I'll, I'll take anything y'all don't want. 1 Corinthians 3, maybe you've read this before. For we are God's fellow workers. Isn't that cool? That God would even allow us the privilege of coming alongside him and being workers in this, in this kingdom that he's building. For we are God's fellow workers. You're God's field. God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one, watch this, should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, if that's the foundation they build on, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. And if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. It's a lot in there, but don't miss the fact that what he's saying is, I fully intend to reward you for your faithfulness to me. And again, I don't, I don't know what all those rewards are. I, I'm, let's be honest with you now. If I'm wrong, when I get to heaven, I'll apologize. But I really don't think the reward is floating around on a cloud strumming a harp. Nothing against harp players, if you happen to be one. I, but I just don't think that's it. I don't know what it is. But I know if God says there's rewards, I, I know it's got to be good. Uh, I just mentioned a couple. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's, he's referring to those who are believers. Those who are not believers, that's a different judgment that they appear before. 
They appear before God for a different reason. But even those of us who are saved, we're under grace, but we'll still appear before God someday on the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Is it, is it profitable or was it wasted? Is it, is it eternal or is it burned up? God intends to reward you and me for our faithfulness someday. And that's the reason he's worthy of praise. That, among other things that the elders mentioned there. One more thing that I want to call to your attention. God's faithfulness ensured. Verse 19. And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm, which the stormy stuff there at the end is... We've seen that a couple different times in Revelation. It's simply saying there's a storm coming. The the rest of this is coming. And we know that it is when the bold judgments are are poured out. But it's this this first part. And the temple of God was in heaven was open. Now it's interesting because chapter 11 opens with a description of a temple that's apparently going to be built on earth during the tribulation period. But here, this temple is in heaven. Now what makes that doubly interesting is the fact that when we get to the end of this book... We know that there is no more temple. The scripture tells us there'll be no more need for a temple because God will dwell among his people. Isn't that awesome? But here in chapter 11, there's still a temple in heaven that's, that's there. Which, just like it did in the early part of chapter 11, points to the fact that, that God is dealing with the nation of Israel. Remember, the temple had nothing to do with, with the church. But the temple had significance for the Jewish people, the people of Israel. I've told you all along, I'm going to continue to see an increasing uh, activity with God in the second half tribulation period among the nation of Israel. So all this is saying to us is, is that God is dealing with the nation of Israel. And particularly, it's pointed out about, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. It points out the fact that the ark of the covenant was there. Now, the ark of the covenant is not Noah's ark. All right? That's the big boat. It's another story. The Ark of the Covenant was uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You ever saw that? Ark of the Covenant was this box that God told the, the, the Jews to build. They built it while they was out in the wilderness. When they built the tabernacle, they built this ark. And, and it was in, you know, covered with gold. And on top of it was a lid. And there were these two uh, cherubim whose wings faced each other. And, and that was known as the mercy seat. And, and the high priest went into the Holy of Holies every year and sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. All of that kind of stuff. And, and uh, you may or may not be aware of. But, but it's this gold box. And uh, Moses, the Ten Commandments, the parts of the Ten Commandments were, were put into there. And a jar of manna was put in there. And it was, this, it, was this, it was this connection between the Jewish people and God. It showed that God was among his people. In the book of Joshua, when the Jews were going into battle, you read those stories, the Ark of the Covenant went before them. And it was the Ark of the Covenant that brought victory. And it was indication that God was going with his people and that God was faithfully going to deliver his people. So here in chapter 11 and verse 19, he's saying one more time to the Jews and to us, hey, I'm a covenant-keeping God. You may be unfaithful to me at times, but I will never be unfaithful to you. I will keep the covenants that I have made with you and I will not abandon you. I will be faithful to you. It's his faithfulness ensured. I don't know about you, but that's a good word to hear sometimes in my life. That in the, in the midst of the stuff of life, God is faithful. It's like, a, it's like a trailer. It's like a movie trailer that gives the ending away. But in this case, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. 
Because it reminds us one more time, as, as God has done several times in this book of Revelation, it reminds us one more time that God is righteous, that his reign is guaranteed, that he will extend his righteous rule over this earth, that you and I will be rewarded for our faithfulness in serving him. And the text says, he shall reign forever and ever. Literally, in the original language, from the ages to the ages. He will reign from the ages to the ages. All I can say to that is, go God. It's exciting to think that no matter how things may look at times, we know that in the end, we win. God has already secured the victory, and you and I can live by faith in that victory. Life is tough at times, and the enemy is real. But, praise God, Satan is already defeated, whether he realizes it or not. The question is, do we live like we are victors? Do we, by faith, claim the promises of God and display the joy and peace of God in our lives? There is no better advertisement for following Jesus than to see us living out our lives as if the battle were already won. Because it is. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. Q&A is an interesting question uh, today, and it looks like this. What does the Bible say about tolerating and associating with sinners. Now, uh, let me kind of give you the context as as the person that wrote this statement. um, Here's what they said. The the statement, he who is without sin, is a generic response of a sinner. Why does the church tolerate immorality, i.e. homosexuality, adultery, and not shun the sin and those who refuse to follow God's law? What does the Word say about tolerating and associating with those sinners? So that's basically the question. What does the Bible say about tolerating and associating with sinners? And it is a good question um, that the church needs to grapple with and and recognize, you know, where's our place in this? How do we fit in all this? Quite possibly the person who wrote this question uh, may be thinking of uh, this passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. It says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? 
What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, a, a, another name for Satan? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now, if that were the only text that we had, then we might say, well, wow, that, that sure sounds like we shouldn't have, if we're a follower of Jesus, if we're a believer, then we should have nothing to do with unbelievers, those who have not professed Christ as their Savior. Well, the only thing I'll say before we move on in regards to that particular text, I think it's a very key word there is the word yoke. Do not be unequally yoked. It's a very strong word in the original language, and it means a, 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 a really a bringing together. It's not talking about simply relationships that you and I might have with our, with our neighbor or a coworker or a family member that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, but to have something that's much deeper than that. Marriage, for instance would clearly apply in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you uh, are a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, Paul's counsel is do not marry an unbeliever because you don't share the same interests. You won't share the same interests. Don't go down that road. A a business contract, entering into some type of business together with someone, that would be a, a, a reason to take serious consideration of whether as a follower of Jesus, uh, this is something that God would have me to do or not. Now, let's look at a few passages of Scripture. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus says this. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So clearly, there is a scriptural commandment to engage those around us in this field, as Jesus calls it. it, Those around us who are without a relationship with Jesus Christ. So whatever all the church's responsibility is, clearly... We're called to engage those around us. Another in uh, John chapter 4, Jesus said, Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Again, this analogy of the lost in in the fields. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Again, this clear commandment to go out and engage the world around us with the message of Jesus. What about Jesus' personal examples? Well, we know this. We know that in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus ate with a group of what the text calls a group of tax collectors and sinners simply saying these were people who were not following after God, that they were not seeking God's will for their life, they were living in some ongoing sin in their life, and Jesus goes and engages them, fellowships with them, if I can use that term, hangs out with them, and of course that really ticked the religious guys off when he did that. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus went to the home of Zacchaeus for dinner, and and Jesus invited himself. And Zacchaeus, as we find out later, had been ripping the people off for years as a tax collector, abusing his position and taking advantage and and making himself rich off of other people's hard-earned money. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down out of the tree. I'm going to your house. going to have dinner with you. And Zacchaeus brought in a bunch of his friends. Well, who do you think his friends were? Uh, Here's another one. In John chapter 4, Jesus struck up a conversation with the woman at the well. Very unheard of in that culture for a Jewish man to to talk with this, this woman anyway. And she's not just, you know, a woman. She is uh, living with a man. She's on her fifth guy, and the one she's with, she's not even married to. She almost certainly has committed adultery. She's uh, living in, in an ungodly situation. She's living with a man outside the bonds of marriage, clearly outside of God, God's design and desire for mankind. And yet Jesus goes to her and he begins to engage her in this conversation. He begins to draw her to himself. And then in John chapter 8, Jesus 
the story where he protected a woman caught in adultery, if you're familiar with that story, where uh, the, the Pharisees, religious leaders, brought her to Jesus, to, really to try and trap Jesus was the intent. And they, were gonna, they said, we got a stoner, and, and Jesus made that statement, and he said, he is without sin, cast the first stone. Now, he, didn't say, he wasn't saying that the woman was not a sinner. As a matter of fact, he tells her at the very end, if you're familiar with the story, you remember this? He says, go and what? Sin no more. He, di- he didn't say she wasn't a sinner, and he didn't, he didn't not confront her sin. So, we have an obligation to engage those who are that a relationship with Jesus Christ. We cannot just go up on a mountaintop and hide away or, or build a monastery and hide away from the things of the world. We're called to engage the world around us. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky, all right? Um, and, and there is differences of opinion on this. But I am of the belief, and this church, quite honestly, has been founded on the belief that the, the church itself, the people who make up the church, uh, our life groups and things like that, they can be used as opportunities to draw in people without a relationship with Jesus, let them experience, see what it's like to worship the Lord, let them hear the Word of God, and let God's Spirit work in their heart and their life to bring change. So we believe that cross-culture, that one of the, the key evangelistic tools that we have is to simply go out and invite. And I want to tell you all the time, just invite people. Just invite people. Give out those Zybite cards. Just get people to come and let God's Spirit uh, do its work. There are those that believe the church is, to come into the church, to even be in here, is uh, not for those outside of, of Christ. I, I, I don't happen to agree with that opinion. Now, what the church cannot do is is allow someone to, to make a profession of faith, come into the fellowship. In other words, be united and actually become a, a part, a member of that church. What a church cannot do is allow a person living in sin to come into that without a confrontation of the sin in their life, without saying to them, listen, where you are in your life, you say you want to come to Christ, you say you're wanting to follow him, but you need to understand you're living. Here's what God's word says, whether it's homosexuality or, or living with somebody outside of marriage or adult, whatever it is, okay? gossip or whatever, to be able to point to God's Word and say, here's what God's Word says. God's calling you out of that. And if they're coming to Christ, and it's generally their desire to give their life to Him, then you'll begin to see that change. But, but if, if we say, well, you've got to clean up your act before you come in here, well, the truth is, none of us would be in a relationship with God if that were the case. God doesn't want us whitewashed. He wants to wash us white. And so He encourages us to go to others. What church cannot do is, is not... We have to embrace people as they come in with, with all of their baggage, with all the stuff that they have in their life, however they're living their life. They have to, we have to allow them to come in, love on them, show them the love of God, teach them the truth of God's Word, and then allow God's Spirit to bring change. And the final thing the church cannot do, the church cannot allow those who profess Christ and who are part of the church to, to be engaged in an ongoing sinful activity and not deal with it. The church has to deal with it. If, if someone is doing something outside of the boundaries of of God's word, we would have an obligation as the leadership of the church to go to that person and say, listen, we love you, but in Jesus' name, here's what God's word says. You can't continue in this, in this way of life. So love them. The old adage really is true, although people don't always understand it. We have to hate the sin, but love the sinner. That's what we're called to do. That's Q&A.